Well, one of the challenges in preaching through books of the Bible systematically in an order like we're doing through the Gospel of Mark is that when you come across difficult passages, we can't just skip over them. And today's passage is one of those. It deals with the subject of divorce. Divorce is a very sensitive topic. So many have been impacted. In my own family, we've walked out the reality of divorce for almost 25 years. There's no doubt that divorce and talking about it raises many negative emotions. So many have been deeply wounded and have walked through the trauma of divorce. And yet each situation is so unique and so nuanced that it's difficult to kind of state principles and then not have them interpreted individually um, by individuals who have experienced this. And so my hope and prayer today is that rather than potentially pouring salt into these wounds, that we might experience the healing presence of Jesus. Jesus who came, full of grace and truth, into our broken world to preach a message of repentance and belief. He came to establish his kingdom so that his followers might submit to his rule and his reign in our lives. And as we have already been discovering through these studies, that walking with Jesus is not easy, but it is the way to freedom and to living life to the full. We have to understand that the Bible is God's heart for us. In it, God lays out the best for us. And so we need to read it with that understanding. So what is God's ideal? What is his best? And how does my life align with it? I'll say right up front, you may disagree with some of the things that I'm going to say today. And all I'm asking is that you would be open, that you would sit and with the word of God open on your lap, that you would listen for the Holy Spirit and listen beyond even my words, that you would hear what God is saying to us about this subject. And really, as we'll discover, it's more about marriage than it is about divorce. So let me read these verses for you in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Sorry, Mark chapter 10. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? While he permitted it, they replied, he said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, Sometimes when we read your word and these words just jump off of the page and they hit us hard, we have lots of questions and thoughts and emotions that are raised when we, when we read them. 
Father, I pray, though, that you, your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher today. That you would engage us in a divine dialogue this morning between your spirit and our spirit. And so, Father, help us to listen beyond the words of a man and listen to your spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know uh, my wife, Tina. We've been married 25 years last September. Tina is from Cleveland, and I always say this. I have to ask her for permission most of the time uh, to talk about anything related to our life and to our marriage. And I did in this case, and so she was reluctantly uh, agreed to this. But we met, actually, I was living in Calgary at the time. She's from Cleveland. We met in Chicago, of all places, at a conference. And uh, we, we met in July of 1993 and were married in September of 1994. During those 13 months, we only spent 31 days physically together in the same room. So that relationship developed over long distance. It took a, a lot of time. There were a few visits, of course, uh, in between there. Lots of phone calls. And this was before there were phone plans. And so my phone bill would be like $250 a month, which when you're making, I don't know, eighteen dollars or $20,000 a year, uh, that was a lot of money to spend on, on phone calls. Um, but we weren't dating and we weren't doing anything else, and so it kind of, kind of worked out that way. Tina would even fax me letters. This is how long ago this, this was. So one night I called her late at night. Uh, I always forgot about the two-hour time change. And she says, oh, I just put my book away and shot off the light and was just going to bed. I go, oh, what were you reading? She didn't want to tell me what she was reading. She was embarrassed by it. Now, if you're trying to keep a secret from me, I am absolutely relentless. Just a word of warning. And so I am just on her like, well, what are you reading? She goes, no, I can't. I'm not going to tell you. Well, like, I'm kind of now getting worried. I mean, if she's reading some really odd things, maybe, you know, that's going to maybe make it or break it. And, uh, and so she kind of under her breath says, I'm finding the love of my life. And um, I kind of laughed. And uh, I laughed because about three months earlier, I had read actually the same book. <laughs> but one of the, the... The thesis of the book is that... Um, we need to be able to do a better job at finding and engaging and wisely choosing a marriage uh, partner. And so there's several principles that he goes through in the book. And one of the ones that we remember was find someone who is a lot like you. And at the end of that chapter were a list of 50 helpful marriage similarities. And so Tina and I, on those long-distance phone calls, would just go through these, these a few at a time, maybe two or three at each phone call, and we would talk about her perspective, my perspective, kind of like pause a bit, and we'd go, check, check, yeah, check, we're on the same page, good. And we discovered that we had about 49 out of 50 of these similarities in there, and so we were kind of like, well, okay, we can, we can carry on now. Now, incidentally, the author of the book was the person who developed eHarmony is one of the top dating sites. And, uh, and so in essence, you can kind of say that Tina and I met online. Um, but even though we had these visits, you know, the reality was we came into that last week before our marriage and I was, I was weirded out. I was afraid. I was scared. I was uncertain. I was, it, it felt so surreal. I'm like, what am I doing? What are we doing? Do we really know each other that well? 
And even Tina says, like, after the fact goes, you were really weird those days before our wedding. And that's why. But part of the reason was, well, actually, i got to show you a picture. This is me and my best man praying uh, for, for th- that this is the right thing just moments before we're about to go out on the platform, right? Um, uh, we're being kind of silly there, but it was. It was one of those things. But why, why, did this, why did this feel so huge? And it is because I knew in my heart that the commitment that I was making was a lifelong one. There was no slipping out the back, Jack, right? It was all in. And was I absolutely sure that this is the one to whom I can commit the rest of my life to? Now, where did those convictions come from? Those came because I was taught. Those came because I read the Bible. Those came because I wanted to honor God with my life and my marriage. And I watched other people model this. And so this is a subject, really, friends, that is so important. We all get it. And if we can't talk about important, difficult things at church, where will we ever talk about them? We've got youth. We've got young adults. We have singles who are still processing this. And we have married couples here today, obviously. And and I believe that there's something here for all of us to learn. And so what does the Bible, and specifically Jesus, teach us about marriage? So as we're walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, we've repeatedly discovered that the paradox of our faith is that to walk with Jesus is not a pathway to an easy life, but it's a call to do hard things if we're to follow him and to live life to the full. And so let me begin just by setting the scene again so we understand the context. And so we find that Jesus and his disciples, they're on the move again. Galilee is now in the rearview mirror, and Jerusalem, the cross, Calvary, is on the horizon. In fact, we're only 52 verses from Jesus arriving in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so they are moving south quickly. They're now moved a little bit east of the Jordan River. And so if you've been in Israel, you'll, you'll maybe geographically locate yourself there. And Mark describes a very familiar scene. People continue to flock to Jesus, even though by this time, Jesus was really wanting to be alone with his disciples. We've seen this in the recent weeks where he was trying to to have some privacy with them. He was really on a mission to teach them and prepare them for what lies ahead. But it's no big surprise to us that the crowds gathered again and that Jesus used this opportunity to teach them. That is what he did. Now, we don't know what he was teaching them, but we do know that he had a consistent message. He says, you know, from the very beginning, the the, the kingdom is near, the good news is at hand, repent and believe. And so he taught this over and over and over. And it's into this scene where Jesus is teaching. We don't know about anything specific about the location, um, but, but some Pharisees arrive and they have the specific intention of trapping him. It's really important to understand the context of that. They're trying to set him up. And some translations use the word test or even tempt. And so they asked Jesus a loaded question. Verse 2, they said, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Now, to understand how this was a trap, we need to understand some background. You see, among the Jews at the time, there were two schools of thought on this subject of divorce. 
There was a conservative view that was that it was more narrow, it was a little more strict, and that view was that it was that divorce was restricted to moral transgressions, in other words, sexual immorality. And then there was the liberal view. This view allowed divorce for just about any reason, and I mean anything. If she burnt your toast, that was good enough reason. If she went out in public with her head uncovered, if, if, um, if she was quarrelsome, you know, she kind of pushed back on something, you could just dismiss it, dismiss her. Even if the husband found some other woman who was more attractive, they, they figured they could just trade her in, in essence. And the fact is that Jewish law allowed divorce on almost any grounds. Because sadly, women were considered properly, they, property. They were easily bought and sold and abandoned. And the Pharisees, they wanted Jesus now to pick one of these two sides on this controversial issue. And Mark specifically says that they're trying to trap Jesus. The word literally means to put to the test. They're trying to force him into a corner. And by by taking a side, Jesus would ultimately alienate himself from the people that would hold the opposing view. It was a kind of a can't-win situation for him. And some scholars even think that the Pharisees were trying to set him up against Herod to get him in trouble with Herod. Because back in Mark chapter 6, there was, uh, we came across kind of the messed up life of Herod. He had married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and John the Baptist took issue with that, and so he told um, Herod flat out, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And, and Herod kind of had a soft spot for, for John, and so he put him in prison, um, but Herodias, his, his wife, she had this vengeful, spiteful spirit, and so when she had the opportunity, she had John the Baptist beheaded. So he was killed for speaking out against uh, their relationship. And so the Pharisees might be thinking, if they could get Jesus to be a little bit offside with Herod, maybe he will suffer the same fate as Jesus. Anyway, Jesus sees through the intent of his heart And so he answers them with a question in verse 3. He says, well, what did Moses say in the law about divorce? And so Jesus turns the tables and he puts the question back to them. What did Moses say? Well, they knew what Moses said. They were students of the law. And so they said, well, he permitted it, they said. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and just send her away. And so you can read about this law for yourself in opening verses of Deuteronomy chapter 24. But what we need to understand is that Moses didn't start this practice in order to make it easy to divorce. He did it because he needed to control the chaos that had resulted from allowing a man to divorce his wife for any reason. Men were abusing the law. They would essentially discard their wives, sending them off and leaving them bankrupt. But the certificate, this written notice that they would get, would actually state that they were allowed to remarry. So it was was sort of like, like a pink slip, like just kind of a termination notice, sending them off and hoping someone else would pick them up, marry them, and then take care of them. It was a terrible practice, horrendously abused. Women would basically just be dismissed, treated 
like a piece of property. And so look at Jesus' response in verse 5. But Jesus responded. He, being Moses, wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. Jesus' response is that even though divorce was permitted by Moses, they just had to provide a written notice. But even though it was permitted, it was not God's desire for marriages to end in divorce. And Moses thought that the law requiring a certificate would help prevent divorce. Instead, they took it as permission, and women ended up suffering through the indignity of it all. And for many... Marriage had become just a casual relationship of convenience, and when it became inconvenient, they would just end it and move on to someone else. And Jesus says that Moses only wrote the law as a compromise because of their hard hearts. And frankly, that is the real issue that Jesus addresses here, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But Jesus knows what God's plan and purpose for marriage was from the very beginning. And so in, in discussing this with the Pharisees, he, he takes them back to creation, right back to the beginning, to the first two chapters of Genesis. And he quotes Genesis 1, verse 27. God made them male and female. And then he quotes from Genesis 2, verse 24. He says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And from the very beginning of creation, we see God's intended structure for marriage. And then Jesus in the New Testament, here in Mark and in Matthew's gospel as well, he reaffirms God's plan for marriage and for humanity. This is God's design, and we always have to remember that he has our best in mind. He says marriage is a gift from God for men and women to experience a oneness between one another that simply cannot be experienced in any other way. They complement one another. Adam's paradise was not complete until God introduced Eve. And so as I say this morning, when two are one, when two are one, it is a mutually beneficial relationship that moves each member of that relationship closer to Christ. And so here Jesus chooses then really to elevate the sacredness of marriage. And so let me just make three comments about marriage. First of all, when two are one, it is permanent. At least it should be. But it isn't always. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But the picture that Jesus presents A man and a woman coming together and the two becoming one is meant to last a lifetime. It's a permanent relationship, a permanent bond. In fact, after quoting Genesis, Jesus adds in verses 8 and 9 these words. He says, Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So no one should ever enter into marriage with kind of a try-and-see attitude. Well, let's just try this and see if it works. In marriage, when two become one, there is a leaving, meaning to depart or forsake mom and dad, and a cleaving. Some older translations use those two words, leaving and cleaving. And this cleaving means to glue or to cement. 
And so the bond that is formed is strong and it's permanent, and therefore it is not easily dissolved. And that's what makes divorce so painful. Because two lives have come together and they're inextricably woven together. Because only in marriage does one plus one equal one. It's like putting two plants in the same pot. The two virtually become one plant as as those roots are intertwined. And it's extremely difficult to separate the two plants neatly or completely. And even if you do, the plant has become shaped by the presence of the other one. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman who are bonded together through vows. Vows that are sacred and strong and they are not to be easily set aside. Maybe you've been married a long time and you've forgotten, uh, you know, your vows from back in the day. Or you've never been married so you don't even really know what the vows are. Maybe you've attended a wedding and you've heard them, but but you're not really paying attention to them. You're, You're busy checking out, you know, the dresses and the decorations and everything. But let me remind you, these are the the vows that I typically use in marrying a couple. And it goes like this. It it, it starts with saying the person's name. So there's a personal address, and it says, I take you to be my wife, or I take you to be my husband. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow. To love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. And to that end, I pledge you my loyalty. You know, maybe those of you who are married would benefit from gathering some of your family, some of your closest friends, and prayerfully and sincerely renewing your marriage vows. Just review them. Or or for those of you who are considering marriage, to sit down and study and think what each of these phrases means before you even say it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say something that I believe to be true, but I've never actually studied this or researched this. It just came to me as I was thinking about this. But I think every problem in a marriage relationship can be traced back to a violation of our vows. Just think about that for a moment. When we say to have and to hold you, why am I holding someone else or something else? You know, last week, Pastor Adam, he told us how he and Jolene, they leave their phones by the door. Did you guys remember this, if you were there? We get home, and Tina and I are talking about what a great message it was, and it really was. If you didn't hear it, you need to go back and listen to it online. And she says that maybe we should do the same with our phones. And I'm like, no way. That's crazy talk. That was just totally dumb. I totally disagreed with that. There's something to be said about it. You know that? Did you know, and I came across this stat this week, I wasn't even thinking about it for this message until I was thinking about it, and I thought, wow, that's fascinating. Did you know that studies show that the average person touches their phone, are you ready for this, 2,617 times a day? I don't know how they study that. But heavy users, they say, touch their phones 5,427 times a day. Maybe some of those touches should be reserved for our spouse. 
As I was researching this, I, I came across a great article by Carol Lehman, uh, Five Ways Social Media Can Tank a Marriage According to Divorce Lawyers, the Professionals. And I don't have time to go into all these quotes, but they said that 81% of lawyers have seen an increase in divorce cases using evidence found on social media. Think about that. So what are some of the things that they said? They said, number one, screen time got in the way of FaceTime. Two, reconnecting with old partners led to an affair. Three, Everyone else's marriage appeared perfect in comparison. Friends, that is an absolute lie that the enemy uses in your life to go, you know what, we must be the only ones struggling. There's no one that understands. There's no one that can relate to us. We're all alone in this. Because look at here on social media, everybody else's marriage is perfect. Four, too much personal information was shared online. Right? It, it, it can create distrust between partners. Five, the single life started looking more and more attractive. To have and to hold. To love and to cherish. To me, that, that just can capture so much. There's a great book called Love and, and Respect. You need to hear this clearly. There is nothing loving or cherishing about yelling at each other, using foul language, name-calling, threats, and worse yet, those threats becoming physical harm. If that's your reality, then you need to leave. You need to leave so that your spouse is faced with the painful reality of their actions. And if you are the one being abusive, then listen to this clearly. You need to stop and you need to repent and turn to God and seek forgiveness. You really do. You need help. Because the harm and the hurt that you are causing may do irreparable damage to the marriage bond. And I know that's hard, and that's strong, but stop it. I'm going to address one more thing here. Another reason that two are one is permanent is because when there is sexual union, a bond is formed. It's a spiritual bond. And the Apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 16 through 18. And that's why in Matthew's parallel passage to Mark's, he adds what is known as as the exception clause. There in writing about divorce and remarriage, Matthew adds the phrase, except for sexual immorality. And some translations use a little more ambiguous phrase, marital unfaithfulness. But the reason this is an exception is because if one spouse does commit adultery, they have, in other words, a sexual relationship with another person. They have, in essence, broken the bond that made the two one in the first place. 
And so in these last few verses here, in verses 10 through 12, Jesus makes some really strong statements about divorce and remarriage and adultery. But listen to this. I do not believe that Jesus' intent was to accuse people of adultery, but to argue for the permanence of marriage. He is emphatically stating that divorce for the sake of remarriage is like adultery. Remember the context. They were just dismissing them so they could trade them in. And it was abusive. And Jesus, I believe, would be the first to recognize that divorce is a fact of life which may have to be permitted under certain circumstances. Because we need to, again, I say, remember the context. Jesus is responding to the hostile attempt to trap him in his words. And so he comes back and he makes this incredibly strong statement because he can see the hearts of the Pharisees. But Jesus makes radical demands of his followers all the time. Think about what we've covered in the last few weeks, right? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's not easy, right? Whoever will be first should be last. Whoever will be last will be, whoever will be, last will be the servant of all. That's the attitude that we have towards other people. We serve them. And when you think about that, if we bring that into the context of our relationships where we're seeking to serve one another. But if you think that's strong, it was Jesus who said this in, in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at, woman, at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you remember when the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus? And he says to those that were ready to stone her, because that was in fact the, the penalty for adultery in those days, death. What did Jesus say? Well, those of you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And guess what? Nobody could throw a stone. Because at core, we all sin. We all miss the mark. And for us to single out one thing over another is, is wrong. Friends, are you still my friends? <laughs> the bottom line is this. God has welded two into one. And that bond should be permanent. But that is why it hurts so deeply when that bond is broken. And so there has to be huge measures of grace and compassion and understanding to people who are experiencing that brokenness. But I also want to say this. There is hope and healing and restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus. I don't know if any of you had read the passage that we were, you were uh, that we were going to study today before today and kind of knew what was coming up, but I couldn't help, but as we were singing this morning, um, and I probably shouldn't do this because this is extra and I knew I was already going to be long and all that other stuff, but I was thinking about this. If, if your marriage 
is on that kind of knife's edge of divorce right now. And you're just trying to make sense of it all. I wonder if these words that we sang rang true at all. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder, you're going to hear my prayers, pra- praises roar. You're focusing your attention on Jesus. Up from the ashes, the ashes of this relationship, hope will arise. Death is defeated. King is alive. And then I was thinking the same thing. Waymaker. God is able to make a way when there seems to be no way, right? He's a miracle worker, promise keeper. And you're thinking, you know what? That's exactly what it's going to take. It's going to take a miracle to restore my marriage. Well, then fight for it. Pray for it. Light in the darkness, our God, that is who you are. He's our promise keeper. When two are one, it assumes intimacy. It assumes intimacy. Intimacy that is spiritual. Intimacy that is physical or sexual. Intimacy that is emotional. Because there's a closeness when two are one. It's an intimate sharing of life together. The sharing of a bed. The sharing of hopes and dreams. The sharing of pain and difficulty. And is there really anything more that might draw two people together more than tears and heartache? I already spoke about this spiritual bond. Some call it a soul tie that is formed through sex. And that is why sex should be reserved for marriage. And why, if you're in Christ, you should marry another Christian. Because how else will you have spiritual intimacy? Because it is through the sharing of these aspects of your relationship, spiritual, physical, emotional, that you come to know the intimate details about your spouse. And it is this deep sharing of life that brings joy and satisfaction to the relationship. It becomes the glue that bonds you together. And this isn't probably new to you, but this, friends, takes work, right? This is the hard stuff. This is where you need to stay on top of it, where you need to be intentional. Because if you aren't growing together, you, pro- you are likely growing apart, And in our culture, there are so many factors, right, that just want to pull us apart. It can even be things like work, right? We're going in different directions. One leaves early in the morning and one leaves a little bit later, comes home late. You spend most of your day at work with your coworkers. It's worse when you're doing shift work. You're just going in completely different directions, like two ships passing in the night. Or kids, as great as they are, you, um, you recognize that, that when you have young kids, especially as they get older, you spend so much of your time organizing the kids' activities and you're not paying enough attention to your own relationship. Social media, as I've already talked about it, is is an issue in our culture. The entertainment industry, Hollywood, has a way of making seduction and adultery look so appealing. But friends, it's so wrong, so be on your guard. Watch out for anything that will pull you apart. And sometimes I like to talk about this in, in premarriage counseling or even marriage counseling. I don't do a ton of that because I'm, I'm by no means an expert in this. But I want us to just quickly think about intimacy, conflict, and withdrawal. And if I was a little bit more creative, there would be an arrow going back and forth between those two words. Because where we want to be is we want to have an intimate relationship, a closeness, a oneness. But you know and I know that 
that stuff happens. Things are said. We didn't mean it. It, it leaks out of us, and, and we get into conflict with our spouse. And the issue is, is we need to deal with that conflict so that we can move back to intimacy. But what ends up happening is, is we don't deal with the conflict. And over time, we move actually over to withdrawal. And now we're, we're starting to really pull back. And we've lost interest. And we've lost that passion. And we've lost that desire. And here's what happens. Is sometimes people are at this state of withdrawal. Their hearts really aren't in it anymore. And they're trying to get right back to intimacy. And it doesn't work. You've got to go through the conflict, the things that cause the issues and the problems and the struggles in marriage in the first place. You actually have to go back to that on the journey back towards intimacy. What I remember from a counseling class, marriage counseling class long ago, was this phrase, and, and I hope that you remember this as much as I remember it is, we need to, in our marriages, regularly take out the garbage. Take out the garbage. Because what happens is, is we sweep it under the carpet. If we don't take out the garbage, what happens? It begins to stink. It begins to create bigger issues. But if we regularly take out the garbage, then we can be in this intimate relationship. You see, when issues become huge, when you find that you're at this place of withdrawal, where you might actually say, you know what? I'm not married. I'm just undivorced. That's a problem. You need to get help. And friends, I'm going to tell you this. I've seen this in 27 what-odd years of pastoral ministry. Most couples wait way too long to get help. So if you need the help, you need to go. Do, you know, consider an annual checkup. We go to the doctor. We go to the dentist. We do all these things annually. Why not book an appointment with a counselor and just say, well, how are things? And discover what, what might be better in our lives if we, if we actually looked at this a little bit more intensely. And, and get the support of others, right? Like, you have relationships, you have friendships. Be honest with them. Say, you know what, we're really struggling. We had a huge fight on the way to church today. I, I, I didn't even want to sit beside him, but I did because I didn't want anybody to think anything about us. Be honest. You're not the only ones. And when we put on the perfect face, like everybody's great and every marriage is great, and then you come into that and go, oh, it's, it's not like that. No. Get together with others. Encourage one another and support one another. That's the strength of community, being in a home group and encouraging one another in this part of our journey. Invest in your marriage. I'm going to say this. Okay? Date night. Too bad you waited until it was sold out. But there's conferences all over. Google them. Go to a marriage conference. Get away for the weekend. Do something to invest in your marriage and keep growing in intimacy. Lastly, when two are one, it requires soft hearts. We've already seen how Jesus told the Pharisees and, and Moses that Moses wrote the commandment as a concession because of the hard hearts. Fact is that we are imperfect people living in a sinful environment. Hard-heartedness. That is the human condition. And so this message isn't really about divorce because Mark is raising the issue here of hard-heartedness. That's what Jesus is getting at. He calls them out about their hard-heartedness. And we've already seen this several times in Mark. You can go back to chapter 4 and the parable of the sower and the teaching on purity in chapter 7. Jesus is most concerned about our hearts. 
when the Pharisees were all about asking, what can I get away with? And friends, that's a terrible approach to life. Because we should be asking, how do I align myself with Jesus and his teaching? How God created us. He knows what's best for us. He knows how to get the most out of life. He wants us to experience life to the full. And so that's why I say when two become one, it requires soft hearts. Because purity of heart or a softness of heart is not simply a concept that touches our spirituality or kind of the religious parts of our lives. It's something that touches every part of our lives, including our marriages. And so for us to walk in the ways of Jesus, to navigate lives as God desires us to, we need soft hearts, hearts that are surrendered to and submitted to Jesus, to God's plans and purposes. You see, in my last point, when I talked about conflict and about that middle ground uh, between intimacy and withdrawal, and that we might need to get help through a counselor, that help will only actually be helpful if we approach it with soft hearts, asking ourselves the question, like, what have I done to contribute to the lack of intimacy in our marriage? But if we go into it blaming and shaming and pointing fingers, it's unlikely that we're going to get very far. Tim Keller, in his book, the meaning of marriage. He argues that marriage introduces you to yourself. You realize you're not as noble and as easy to live with as you thought when alone. In a good marriage, you identify your own selfishness and see it as the fundamental problem. You treat it more seriously than your spouse's selfishness. The everyday tasks of marriage are opportunities to cultivate a more selfless love. Every day there's a chance, he says, to inspire and encourage your partner to become his or her best self. You see, marriage ultimately isn't about two individuals trying to satisfy their own needs. It's a partnership of mutual self-giving for the purpose of growing into the image of Jesus. Marriage is about us becoming more like Jesus. It's not about our happiness. It's about our holiness and growing in the character of Jesus. And it's a wonderful gift from God that is permanent, intimate, and requires soft hearts. And so therefore, we must cultivate soft hearts, aligning our lives to God's word, surrendering and submitting to the lordship of Jesus in our lives, taking our understanding of a marriage from God's word, avoiding those things like TV and movies and social medias that try to shape and mold us into the cultural views of marriage. That's why Paul says so strongly in Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Friends, I want to have more of Jesus in my marriage. I want to be more like Jesus in my marriage. Putting Tina first, exercising selflessness, placing her needs ahead of my own, serving her, but I often fail miserably at this. I say hurtful things. I have selfish expectations that that kind of oozes out of me in passive-aggressive ways. But what about you? Where are you at today? But let's come together and let's pray for the grace of to navigate our marriages and our lives with soft hearts. Friends, it's all about grace. All about grace. 
There's so much more that I could be said about that, but I've gone way long this morning. I apologize. But these are big, heavy, weighty, and important things. Let's pray together. Father, hear beyond my words. And hear what the Spirit of God has to say. Father, that right now you would meet each one where we're at. And Father, for marriages that are thriving and flourishing, we give you thanks. We pray for your continued grace and strengthening of them. Father, for those that are struggling and there's pain and there's heartache. Father, may they know your deep, deep love today. May they be filled with hope. Hope that things can change. Hope that things can get better. And Father, if that's not possible, Father, that your grace would be sufficient for those couples in their weakness, in their struggles. And yes, Father, even in divorce that they would know your peace, your comfort, your grace. Oh, God, help us. Soften our hearts. Continue to form us and shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus.